I'd like to welcome all of you to the second of our uh, Thursday afternoon talks. I believe we have speakers scheduled for all the available Thursdays, <coughs> so it's a good thing that all of you are planning on coming each week. Uh, and I have the, uh, the honor and privilege of introducing uh, today's speaker, who is David Schulman, the Rene Lang Professor of Humanistic Studies at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, David Schul uh, David, although, although David Schulman was born and raised <laughs> only uh, 273 miles due west of Foster Hall, uh, in the time since then he's become richly exotic, uh, partly through uh, his world travels and his mastery of, uh, of an extraordinary range of languages and disciplines, which he achieved through a number of far-sighted procedures such as becoming Wendy Doniger's first <laughs> graduate student in London. That was a very good move. Very good move, <laughs> which led to a degree in uh, Tamil literature, doctor's degree in Tamil literature, but of course David has gone on to work uh, just as prominently in Sanskrit uh, and Telugu. More importantly, in uh, all of the extensive writing and teaching uh, and uh, uh, energetic involvement in struggles for all sorts of good things, academic and non-academic, he has consistently, as all of you know, uh, shown a remarkable level of thoughtfulness and uh, sensitivity. And as I'm sure Wendy will mention in a different setting when talking about David tomorrow, uh, humaneness. Menschlichkeit. Menschlichkeit. We, we allow that word here. Um, and I'll just say briefly, because you all know it, David's writing is very extensive, uh, some three dozen books, many of which were done uh, together with our visiting professor for this year, uh, Vina Ryan Rao, one of which is being used here for the first time as the textbook in first-year Sanskrit. This is a primer of Sanskrit that David originally wrote in Hebrew and which we are now using in its uh, new English translation under the title, Sanskrit Made easy. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and many of you have also had the pleasure of, uh, of hearing David speak in this room before and teach in this department. And uh, we're very glad that uh, if everything works out, we'll be having him as a, as a visiting professor again in the spring quarter. The reason for his brief visit this week, as most of you already know, uh, is um, because of something that he's made into a kind of personal occupational hazard, which is the gathering of great honors. In his case, have included everything from a MacArthur Fellowship to a Rothschild Prize, which made him one of the first Sanskritists required to address the entire Knesset in Jerusalem. Um, in Sanskrit. Uh, yes. And uh, also being the, the youngest person ever elected to the Israel Academy of Sciences and Humanities. Um, our plans to have him visit us even more frequently have in fact been derailed by one of these honors, which is his selection as a, the founding director of a new uh, academy, a, a new society of fellows. Is that the, That's it. the correct name? Which yeah. will take a lot of his time, so it's wonderful for us that he's able to be with us briefly this week because of the uh, latest honor, which is that uh, tomorrow the university will be celebrating a an extraordinary 500th convocation, the purpose, well, one of the purposes of which 
is to uh, is to confer a, a degree is to confer a, a, a degree of Doctor of Humane Letters on David Schulman, and in fact, because of that, we're going to have to end a, a little bit earlier than we usually do to, today because I have to extract him about ten minutes before our normal hour arrives in order to uh, escort him to a dinner that the president is throwing in his honor. Um, and so I'll also cut my uh, introduction short and thus have less to say about David than I ever have before on any occasion of speaking about him. In fact, I, I'll say just one more thing, which is that if any of you, when the time arrives, when David has to run out and climb up on the howdah of the provost <laughs> elephant of state, if at that time you feel shortchanged, it should comfort you to know that tomorrow David will be speaking again on another topic uh, when uh, he will appear uh, with his new degree and will give his inaugural lecture as a doctor of the University of Chicago, Professor Dr. Dr. <laughs> or as they say in Jerusalem, Dr. Ryan, double Dr. Da David Dean Schulman, will be speaking at the same time of day, 4.30, but... Uh, two blocks uh, down the street in Ida Noyes Hall. In the Max Pilevsky building. Yes, that's right. Um, and tomorrow uh, you will hear, if you uh, attend the convocation exercises, you will hear Wendy uh, say more Stotra. about a little, a little uh, David Stotra. Uh, so um, today... I'm not quite sure what David is going to be talking about, but I do know the title, I Am Who I Am, on Being Nostalgic in Sanskrit, David Schulman. Okay. Uh, Gary, you succeeded in embarrassing me more than perhaps any human being has ever done before. <laughs> I think I'm going to pretend that actually everything you said... Um, um, describe somebody else. Uh, so I am not who I am. Um, and I want to say it's really nice to be back and uh, happy to see every, every one of you. Uh, a lot of good friends and um, it's a joy to be here to talk to you. So um, I'm going to be talking about nostalgia. Uh, I'm going to say a few words of introduction then we'll look at um, a, few, uh, a few verses. Uh, in Sanskrit and in Tamil. Um, because of the time constraint, we may have to read them a little more quickly than I would normally have wanted to. Um, and then at some point, I hope to be able to have some time to talk about uh, a very major uh, Sanskrit text that is Bana's uh, prose romance, the Kadambari. Um, I want to say a few words about the genesis of this talk and how I became interested in nostalgia. Uh, actually, it happened uh, last spring in Jerusalem. Uh, we did a kind of cross-cultural and interdisciplinary workshop uh, on the theme of nostalgia. Uh, we called it Nostalgia as it used to be. And uh, we had people talking about all kinds of uh, nostalgic uh, themes and literatures. Um, most of you will know that in Chinese poetry, for example, it's a very, very major theme. Uh, Greek and Latin pastoral. Um, many literatures actually have thematized nostalgia in a very uh, clear way. Uh, I initially had thought that there was no such thematization of nostalgia in the sense that we're familiar with in classical India, but of course what happened was 
this longer I was thinking about it, well, first one verse came to mind, the first one that we're going to read in a second, and then another, and then another, and quite a few from Tamil, and uh, by, the, by the time I came to actually have to say something, I was flooded with verses that seemed to be about nostalgia. Although still, I believe it's very much worth asking ourselves um, whether nostalgia is indeed thematized as such within classical Indian literatures, and secondly, if it is, then what would be distinctive about that particular way of thinking of nostalgia? So let me say something about what, what I mean by nostalgia. The term itself is a neologism. It's attested only uh, beginning in the late 17th century. It comes from nostos and algos in Greek, nostos, that is to say the return home, algos, suffering or pain, that is the longing for home. Actually, it's a uh, a Greek Latin calc for Heimweh, German Heimweh. It actually means homesickness, an intense form of homesickness. But that's not what we usually mean by nostalgia, right? If we, if I say nostalgia to you, uh, I think what everybody in this room would say is that we're talking about some kind of uh, wistful uh, longing for some form of imagined past. And I want to stress the fact that the past is always going to be an imagined one, which is also going to be patterned and organized in certain um, uh, kind of uh, definite ways. Um, and it's that kind of nostalgia that I'll be talking about here. Now, I also want to say just by way of a beginning, and before we even get into the few materials that I, I brought you here, that nostalgia it looks ostensibly as if indeed it is about the past, that is this kind of nostalgia. Um, but in actual fact, you'll see that uh, in our materials, and maybe generally in nostalgia throughout the world, nostalgia really is not very much about the past. It's about the present, and in many cases, it's really about the future. You'll see in a minute um, what I mean by that. Okay, um, by the way, uh, I just want to say that uh, everybody in this room can go through the same kind of exercise that I did. That is, if you ask yourself, uh, what kind of verses or other texts uh, have to do with nostalgia from the languages that you're working in, um, then you may find some very surprising results. Of course, it's easy in certain Indian literatures. If we were talking about ghazals, there would be no problem, I think. You know, But I think all of you might begin at this point to ask yourselves whether there are you know, uh, significant texts that are nostalgic um, in, the, um, in the form that I'm talking about here, okay? So let's begin with this uh, first text, a very famous verse. Um, everybody has the handout? Okay. No? Kim? Is there another handout? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this was the first verse that came to mind when I started asking myself about nostalgia in Sanskrit. Uh, it's a verse that's cited by Mamarta at the conclusion of the first chapter of his textbook on poetics, the Kavya Prakasha. And uh, it's cited as an example of a verse uh, that is completely and utterly devoid of any kind of figuration, alankara. What Mamarta says at the end of this passage is that you can also have kavyatva, that is the quality of being poetic, uh, even in the complete absence of any form of figuration, even though his book is going to be largely devoted to the question of um, analyzing the figures. So he brings this as an example. Yah kaumara haraha sa eva hivaras ta eva chaitrakshapas te chon milita malati surabhaya praudha kadambani laha sa chaivasmi tatapi tatra suratavya paralila vidhao reva rodhasi vetasi tarutale 
Chetaha Samutkantate. The man who took my virginity is now my husband. These are the same nights of spring, the same wind soaked the same wind soaked with kadamba and jasmine in full bloom. And I'm still me, the same woman. It's just that my heart keeps longing for the love games we once played there on the riverbank amidst the reeds. So here, actually, you have a possible word for nostalgia. Ask yourself, how do you say nostalgia in Sanskrit or Telugu or Tamil or Bengali or any other language? could be that utkanta, the word that we use for longing generally. Maybe that's one way to refer to nostalgia, like we have here, chetaha samutkantate, final words of the verse. This verse, it, it turns up in the anthologies, by the way, it's uh, attributed to a poetess who I believe is called Sheila Bhattarika, uh, but people seem to know it mostly from Mamata. Um, this verse is in some ways very paradigmatic for nostalgia texts in general in Sanskrit, and above all I want to draw your attention to the third pada, sa chaivasmi tatapi, tatapi tatrasur and so on, sa chaivasmi, I'm still me. I'm still me. I'm the same woman. That's the formula that interests me here. I think it's worth asking what it actually means. When a person says, Sa Chaivasmi, I'm still the same person, well, actually, I would want to suggest to you that what it means is exactly the opposite. I'm really not the same person that I used to be, right? There's a certain kind of disjunction that is opened up, right? I wish I was the person that I was back then, but in fact, I don't feel like I'm that same person anymore. That's that gap within which the utkanta, the longing, can begin to be generated, right? So please note the fact that in a very typical verse on nostalgia, the speaker says, I am who I am, meaning I am not who I was, or I am not exactly who I am continuously, or something like that. And we're going to come back to that. That's the formula that I'm most interested in, okay? So just bear it in mind. Let's, um, let's have a look at one or two other texts. Here's uh, number two. Um, here's a very well-known verse from the uh, Tamil Sangam corpus, Kurundohai 226. Um, very beautifully translated by A.K. Ramanujan. Uh, I somewhat foolishly thought initially that I was going to try to retranslate it, uh, but the longer I looked at it, the longer, I mean, the more it seemed to me that actually Raman had got it absolutely completely perfect and that I would only ruin it if I tried again. And so here's Raman's translation. The only thing I do want to tell you is that um, because of the um, way Tamil syntax works uh, in relation to English syntax, the order of the statements are completely uh, reversed in the English version. Let's read it quickly in Tamil. Puvodupurayum kannum veyena viralvanapedia tolum pirayena madimayakuru nudalum nandrum nalamanvari tori algalum tayangutirai poruda tarai venpu kurugena marum perunturai virinio chirpanodu naha vunge. And Raman's translation. Before I laughed with him nightly, the slow waves beating on his wide shores and the palmyra bringing forth heron-like flowers near the waters, my eyes were like the lotus, my arms had the grace of the bamboo, my forehead was mistaken for the moon, but now... 
Um, a couple of things I want to say about this. Actually, I wish we had time to like discuss these verses together. Be, I'm sure there'd be very interesting responses around the table and around the room. Um, since we don't have all that much time, I'm just going to say one or two things. First of all, again, I want to say it's a very precise translation. Um, Raman's final, conclu- the conclusion of the verse, but now, with the open-ended quality, um, actually in the Tamil it appears in the exact midpoint of the verse. And in fact, that's what it means. Nalla man. Man is a kind of particle which means apparently something like now. That's what the dictionaries and the commentaries tell us. Ipurudu. Man. So the verse is actually divided into two halves. First you have these comparisons. The eyes that were like the lotus. The arms like the bamboo. The forehead <coughs> mistaken for the moon. But now, okay, and then this long description what does now mean? It was well, before I laughed with him every night on the shore and so on. But now. You know, like so many of those uh, Sangam poems, this one's a rather complex one. It looks simple maybe at first glance. The minute you begin to look more deeply at it, you can see that there's a kind of double nostalgia uh, operating here, right? Just think about it. Um, there's a sort of longing for this state, the kind of early pre-state, the state before the love relationship had begun. But that was the state in which the woman says of herself that her eyes were like the lotus, and so on. All the conventional metaphors. There's something about using those conventional similes, metaphors, which suggests that maybe the longing for that initial state is not such a happy longing. Something was lost, perhaps, right? But also, um, there's, of course, this somewhat tragic quality which comes with the second nostalgia. There's a kind of longing for those nights when she was making love on the banks of the um, sea with this man. And you get this kind of um, mirror-like complexity, which is in some ways rather typical of uh, Sangam poetry. So here's a kind of double nostalgia, and it has that gap built into the middle of the poem which suggests that there's been a kind of break, and we'll be talking about that gap a little more in just a moment, okay? Okay, let's look at number three. Number three is a poem which is um, uh, supposed to belong to the Amaru Shataka collections. Um, Amaru actually is not a single book, as many of you know, it's more like a genre, so this is one of the Amara-like love poems. Um, little different maybe than the first two examples that we read. Let's, let's read it. Purabhut asmakam pratamam avibhina tanuriyam tatonu tvam preyan vayamapihatashaha priyatamaha idanim natastvam vayamapikalatram kimaparam atanam prananam kulishakatinanam palamidam It's a sad verse. At first we were a single unbroken body. Then you were my lover, and I, to my sorrow, your beloved. Now you're my husband, and I'm your wife. What's next? That's the nature of this goddamned life, hard as steel. Actually, it doesn't say steel, right? It says hard as um, kulisha, that is vajra. It doesn't sound very good in English to say it says hard as crystal. That's what it means. Diamond, yeah. Diamond, 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 diamond right. Diamond, right. Adamant. Adamant. Adamant, yeah. Hard as diamond. You could say that. That's true. Yeah, yeah. 
Hardest time. Okay. Happy to take that. Okay. I remember I told you at the beginning that nostalgia is often about the future. Here it is here. You see it very clearly, right? The whole verse is directed towards the future. What's going to happen next? Whole uh, kind of uh, process of um, unraveling. First we were a single body. Eventually they got married. What's next? You know, and there's this kind of bitter statement about what life is. So here's a nostalgic poem which actually fits very familiar uh, format as far uh, as we're concerned. Um, I just want to mention, I give it here, there's a Tamil version of this poem. Um, so the Tamil speakers here can read it. Um, Sasha, Yigal, Jim. Um, there's a story about this poem which I perhaps should tell you in Tamil. First of all, I should say that the Tamil version, of the, although it's very close to the Sanskrit version, um, ends a little differently. That kind of bitter uh, note that you see so prominently in the Sanskrit poem is not there in the Tamil. It goes through the same chorus, once we were a single body, and then we became lovers, and then we became husband and wife, and then it says, and what will happen next in the days to come? You tell me. You know, that bitter note is missing. The verse has been considerably softened. The story that is told about it is that one of the great uh, musicians of the 19th century, a great Carnatic singer called Mahavaitinath Iyer, um, sang this verse at a particular occasion. The Tamil, the Tamil verse. Uh, he had had very close relations with a particular patron, and uh, over several years. And then, as sometimes happens with the patron-client relations, the patron kind of drifted away, lost interest, and years went by. And one day, the patron came to a concert that Mahavaidyanathar was singing. And at the end of this concert, as a kind of encore, he sang this poem. You know, once we were a single body, what's coming next? And you can imagine the effect this had on the patron. Okay, um, let's look at, um, uh, well actually before you read the Bhutti poems, there's a, there's a poem that I didn't put in here because I figured everybody knew it too well. Uh, but actually it's an interesting verse and I have to mention it at least, and that's the verse from the um, interlude that uh, begins the fifth act of the Shakuntala. Ramyani viksha madurangshanishamya shabdan pariyutsuki bhavati yatsukito pijantuhu Sauhridani. Um, let me remind you what, what the context for this is. Um, this is exactly the moment before Shakuntala turns up at Dushanta's court. The man who has actually just uh, pledged her a few weeks before, pledged her undying love. She's the great love of his life. She's about to turn up in the court and he will look straight at her and say, who are you? I don't remember you at all. So before this happens, just a moment before it happens, Dushyanti hears from behind a curtain somebody singing a beautiful song, and then he sings this verse, which, which says, when you look at something beautiful or you hear some beautiful music, your heart becomes filled with a kind of yearning. Pariyutsuki bhavati, right? So why is that? That's the question. Why is it that when I see something beautiful or listen to some beautiful music, I become a little restless? This tremendous yearning overpowers me, which I think, incidentally, is a true empirical observation. If you see a beautiful landscape, it can make you a little restless. And the answer is, um, must be that a memory is beginning to emerge, something from some previous life, which is still bhavastira, that is still rich with emotion. The emotion is still alive, right? So even though I can't actually remember it, it is a memory that is mine and exists somewhere in my 
mind, and that memory can be triggered off, activated. This vasana memory can be triggered off by various circumstances. For example, seeing something beautiful or listening to something beautiful, right? So here's an interesting thing. Um, I'm just mentioning this in passing. This may be actually something rather distinctive in an Indian theory of nostalgia. Could be that you might be able to be nostalgic for something that you simply cannot remember at all, right? It belongs somewhere into, in your memory. You've experienced it, but you have absolutely no access to that memory. You do not remember it, and yet you're feeling that same kind of nostalgic longing. Sort of an interesting twist, I think, on the notion of nostalgia. And again, I want to say that this is really not about the past. See, this is a look at the look at the context. This is a verse that is spoken exactly before the critical moment in the Shakuntala when Shakuntala turns up and her husband they were married in a Gandharva marriage, right? Her husband looks at her and doesn't recognize her. So again it is oriented forward towards the future, ostensibly backwards, but really forward. Okay. You might bear that in mind. There um, if we look at number four in the handout well, this is what happened to me. As soon as I began thinking about nostalgia, of course, um, Bhavabhuti came up. Um, really, Gary should be talking about this and not me. Bhavabhuti is perhaps the great poet of nostalgia in Sanskrit. Uh, in the opening act of the Uttarama Charita, when Rama and Sita are walking along a gallery of painter, paintings, murals depicting the story of the Ramayana, that is their own story, right? So they're looking at these pictures and they keep singing these different verses, which are actually most of them nostalgic verses, especially for the days in the forest before Ravana turned up, you know. This is real nostalgia in a very familiar form to us. So let's just read the two verses. Kimapi kimapi mandam mandam asakti yogad abiralita kapolam jalpatora kramena ashitila parirambha vyapritaikaika doshnor avidita gatayama um, here's a translation that uh, Narayana and I did together some years ago. These are the nights in the forest, right, before the kidnapping. Whispering wonderful whatevers in any which order, cheek touching cheek, arms totally enmeshed from so much loving. We never knew the hours passing when suddenly night itself was over. And since many of you know this verse, Actually, Shelley Pollock says rightly that this verse has the most famous Anuswara in Sanskrit literature. Right? There's that eva, evam, towards the end of the verse, right? Because there's another version. Ratriar eva viaransit, night was suddenly over. There's also ratriar evam viaransit, that's how the night or the nights passed. I'm, afraid, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole story about this. Uh, some of you will know it. Um, but it is, in a way, uh, worth noting that in the form that we have the verse, obviously the, uh, the better reading, which is Ratriar Eva Violansit, suddenly night itself was over, once again we find ourselves really uh, not in the past but in the present. If you say Ratriar Eva Violansit, you're firmly in the narrative past, right? So again, nostalgia turns out to be very much oriented towards present or present future, you could say. Also, you should notice, this is another thing, in this verse and also in the next one, we'll read it in just a second, um, uh, this, is, this actually fits very much the pattern 
of uh, what we might call Greek and Latin nostalgia, such as you see in Virgil's Eclogues, for example. Um, in other words, the past that is being longed for is very much a kind of artifice. It's a self-conscious artifice, so much so that there are almost always metapoetic statements that are kind of deeply embedded in the actual statement of longing for the past, this idyllic um, pastoral past. The Bhavabhuti verses somehow belong to that. And also remember again that these are verses that come up in the context of looking at actually a series of paintings. So again, you have that sense of the artifice, right? The fact that the past that is being remembered is an artistically or aesthetically produced, generated, constructed past, okay? Let's just read the next verse. Smarasi sutanu tasmin bhavate lakshmanena prativihita sapariya svastayo sthanyahani smarasi sarasaniram tatra godavarimva smarasi chattalupanteshu avayor vautanani. He's saying, Rama is speaking to Sita, do you remember, my sweet, the happy days we spent on that mountain? While Lakshmana satisfied our every whim, do you remember the Godavari full to overflowing? Do you remember the games we used to play on its banks? It's a series of verses, all very much part of the same pattern. You just might notice how many nostalgic poems in Sanskrit happen on the riverbank. Right? <laughs> Seems to be a kind of topos. Okay, um, Gary would have more to say Is about the this. The original yeah. sequence. Yeah, that's exactly, the, well, I mean, that's how they appear in the play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You think it should be... I remember them yeah. the other yeah. order, but... I no, well, uh, yeah. Okay, that's all we're going to do by way of a kind of quick um, tour of various uh, sources, and I'm sure that many of you would easily come up with other examples, okay? I'm going to spend the rest of the time um, talking about that formula, Sache Vasmi, I am, that's who I am, or I am who I am, or I am who I was, I'm the same woman that I used to be, and various other um, possibilities of saying that idea. Because you see, what interests me in this, aside from the fact that this seems to be a very consistent theme in verses of a nostalgic tenor in Sanskrit, aside from that, what interests me is the fact that this is a very uh, well-known, venerable formula in Indian literature. Actually, we know it from a variety of contexts. I've given you one prominent and interesting context from the Shatapata Brahmana. This is actually the opening passage of the Shatapata Brahmana as we have it today in the Adyandina version. Uh, this um, describes what the Yajamana, the sacrificer, says at the conclusion of the Darshapurnamasa rite, which, as many of you know, is the paradigmatic rite for all vegetarian offerings in the Shrauta system. This happens on full moon and new moon days, twice a month, okay? Twice a month there's a sacrifice. You want to call it a sacrifice, a kind of ritual. Uh, I won't get into the details of it. It doesn't really matter, but I can tell you what is supposed to happen um, according to what the Brahmana texts tell us. What should happen, if it's correctly performed, is that the yajamana, that is to say the sacrificer, the patron of the sacrifice, in the course of making the offering, he actually is parachuted into the other world, the world of the gods. He goes up to heaven, right? And then he comes back down. Because at this point in the evolution of the Shrauta system, nobody wanted to leave the poor guy up in heaven. That was the last thing he wanted. He wants to come back and live his life on earth, right? He creates, in the course of the ritual, some part of the divatman, that is to say, the, call it the divine body, that he will eventually use when he dies. It'll be waiting for him, kept in storage, 
probably um, you know numbered and classified in some drawer uh, for when he actually dies and goes up there and needs it. But he wants to come back. It's really very important. Now, what does the Shatapati Brahmana tells us, tell us? He says in the, in the course of performing this rite, the Ajamana twice has to actually articulate the vrata, the vow that he, or the, the, the intention behind his sacrificial activity at the outset and upon his return, that is, before setting out for heaven and upon re entering our normal human sphere, right? So look what the text says. Um, We'll just, I'll read just a little bit of it. Look at, um, in the Sanskrit, um, toward the end of the second line, where he says, dvayam va idam natritiyam asti satyam chaiva anritam cha satyam eva deva anritam manushya idam aham anritat satyam upaimiti tan manushebhyo devan upaiti. So let's see what this is in English. This is um, Edgling's uh, translation. He says, twofold, verily. Those are the days when people said, verily. <laughs> twofold, verily, is this universe. There is no third, namely, truth and untruth, satya and anrita. The gods are truth, and man is untruth. Therefore, in saying, I now enter from untruth into truth, he passes from the men to the gods. There's an operative conclusion. Let him then only speak what is true. That means in the course of the vow, not in his normal life. That means while this is happening, let him then only speak truth. For this vow indeed the gods do keep, that they speak truth. Okay, that's on the way up. Now let's see what happens on the way down. After the completion of the sacrifice, he divests himself of the vow with the text, Now I am he who I really am. Idam aham ya evasmi sosmi. Actually, just like what our nostalgic heroine said a few minutes ago, right? I'm the same person that I was. Now, why does he say that? So the Brahmana says, you see, for in entering upon the vow, he becomes, as it were, non-human. And as it would not be becoming for him to say, I enter from truth into untruth, coming back from the world of the gods into the human world, Right? It would not be becoming for him to say that, navakalpate, and as in fact he now again becomes man, let him therefore divest himself of the vow with the text, now I am he who I really am. Okay, think about it for a second. I mean, this is not something I discovered. I mean, people have written about this. It's actually a very beautiful essay by my colleague in Jerusalem, Yochanan Greenspoon, about this. You think about it, to say, I am just the same person I am or was, and you're saying that instead, instead of saying I'm coming from truth to untruth, see, it's in a way the ancient Indian version of the Cretan liars paradox, is it not? All Cretans are liars. I am a Cretan, right? Therefore, I am a liar. Um, this is a statement which, if it is true, is false. Not the other way around, by the way. If it's false, it might nonetheless be true. But, it, but if it's true, it's false. Right? And everybody knows this, and I don't have to expand on it. This seems to be a rather close parallel to that. Right? So, I mean, what does that mean? I am who I am. Basically what it means is I am not who I am. Very much as we saw in the case of the nostalgic poem. Is that not the case? I am who I am. I'm the same woman. These are the same spring nights, same breezes and all of that. Basically what it means is 
something has changed. I am not who I was. I'm not the same person. Look at the depth of the resonance that that seemingly innocent statement has if you contextualize it with these Vedic materials. And in fact, if we had more time, we could go a little further with this because the Upanishadic texts also offer various you know, versions of this kind of statement. Right? So, I've come back to the world of untruth and I am who I am. It's a paradoxical statement. And what it means, as I said earlier, is at least in part the opposite of what it purports to say. Okay? Everybody with me on this so far? Okay, we just have one last example. So I'm finally arrived at the Kadambari. I'm going to go through this relatively quickly in the hopes that we'll have some time for discussion. Okay? And um, get people interested in the Kadambari. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I have to apologize to a few people in this room who actually heard me talk about the Kadambari in Kyoto just a few weeks ago. Um, I'm going to try to avoid uh, rehearsing the stuff that I said there, but I should just tell you, become interested in the Kadambari. Kadambari, for those of you who may not know it, um, it's a prose work, a Gadya Kavya, by Bana. At least part of it is by Bana. Um, in the early 7th century, um, and it tells a kind of um, kata-like uh, romantic story. Um, well, since I mentioned the fact that it's at least partly by Bana, I'd better, I'd better remind you that at least according to the Sanskrit tradition, Bana died at a certain point two-thirds of the way through the text, actually at a very critical point. We're going to be looking at that point in just a moment. He died. The tradition said, actually, says, tells us that he knew he was going to die before he completed the text, and that he, therefore, by a certain te uh, test, which I can't go into here, selected which of his two sons was going to actually complete the work. What we have today is a work that professes to be by two authors, namely Bana and his son, who's called Bhushana Bhatta, who picks it up at this very uh, critical point in the middle of the text. There are a few verses ascribed to the son, in which he says, uh, I'm only carrying on my father's enterprise. There's a rather beautiful um, Ashirvada uh, blessing verse, which you have, it's 6D in your handout. You can read it uh, if you get tired of listening to me talk. Um, but actually, it's a very, um, very eloquent verse because it speaks to this business of the kind of transition, the gap that has been left open by the father's death and the son's sense that he's completing this gap. The only trouble is that although the, the tradition is very clear that this is what happened, that Bana died at this point, uh, as has been pointed out by a colleague of ours, Hermann Tikhon, there's something rather fishy about this death of the author, Bana. Um, again, I don't want to go into the details here. We can talk about it more if you like, uh, if there's time later. Um, but there's something that's a little too neat about the way the thing is set up. And um, I mean, Tikhon says, quoting Mark Twain, that reports of Bana's death were perhaps grossly exaggerated. Well, actually, he's probably dead by now. But whether he actually died halfway or two-thirds of the way through the Kadambari, that's an open question. And I mean, I have some things to say about it. And incidentally, I don't really care whether historically he died or not. That is of no interest to me. What is of interest is that here we have a text which sets itself up with this death of the author built into it. And that tells us something. So I want to try to say a few things about that, but I'm going to address it in a slightly oblique way because of the nostalgia thing. So here I have to take about two or three minutes just to set the stage. The Kadamri tells a very, very complicated story. If I start to tell you the story, 
then I not only will I not make it to the reception, we also won't make it to the convocation tomorrow. It's a long, complicated story. I had to read the book myself several times completely through before I actually had any grip on the story. Um, basically, let me just say that there are two love relationships that are worked out throughout this story, and these relationships actually extend over several lives, lives of the male members of the relationship, because the women are remarkably stable. So these are two different types of love story. That's the thing that is worth remembering. Um, I don't know if this is uh, going to win souls for the Kadamburi or not, but I can tell you as a secret that um, Gary and I are hoping to teach a course on the Kadamburi reading course in the spring. So uh, you'll have uh, an opportunity um, to make up your own mind about these questions. In any case, there are these two relationships. One is that of Kadambari, the eponymous heroine, uh, who is very deeply in love with somebody whose name is Chandrapida. Um, and the trouble with this particular relationship is that although Kadambari is very clear in her own mind that she is deeply in love with this guy, Chandrapida uh, is a kind of... Um, uh, sort of hesitant and insecure lover and cannot ever quite make up his mind if he really wants her or not. And this is not me speaking. I mean, this is actually what Chandrapita says in the course of the text repeatedly. Why is it that I can't feel what I'm supposed to feel? You know? Whereas Kadambari, there's no question, she's like on the point of dying out of her lovesickness. You know? uh, and he himself is this kind of... Uh, dilly-dallying, um, uh, hesitant uh, kind of lover. The other re relationship is between somebody called Pundarika and a friend of Kadambari whose name is Mahashveta. And actually, this is, you might say, a relatively happy story in the sense that they're mutually deeply in love. There's no question of this kind of doubtful hesitation. But in fact, here the problem is that the love is too intense and poor Pundarika actually dies of love leaving uh, Mahashveta uh, to mourn for him, although he doesn't fully succeed in dying. In fact, nobody in the Kadambari actually really manages to die and stay dead. It's almost impossible. Um, I won't tell you any more of it, but you should bear in mind that these two opposed models of the love relationship structure the entire text, okay? Now, here we're coming to the moment of Bana's death. So this is on a need-to-know basis only. All you need to know is that um, the hero Chandrapida uh, has left Kadambari in her home up in the Himalayas. She's a kind of opsaras, by the way. He's a human being. I'll come back to that. He got a message from his father and mother saying, "I'd like to. we'd like to see you, so he immediately rushes home without even saying goodbye to poor Kadambari, who is pining away at death's door. So after some weeks have passed, Kadambari sends a messenger who's called Patraleka. He's gone back to Ujjaini. She's up in the Himalayas. The, the uh, messenger Patraleka comes, and she has a message for Chandrapira. Well, you can guess what the message is all about. Mostly it's about how miserable Kadambari is and how he left without even saying goodbye and those kinds of things, right? Except that they're said in a particular way. Now, Patraleka arrives meets Chandrapita, the hero, okay, begins to deliver this message, and in the middle of the message, Bana dies, the author dies, according to the story. And it's a very suspenseful moment, by the way. She dies, I just have to tell you, he dies, sorry, Bana dies, should know this, 
exactly at the moment that the messenger says, <coughs> quoting Kadambari, what am I going to say to this guy? Shall I say to him, you will see how deep my love for you is by the fact that I have died? And then Bana dies. You see why it seems a little fishy that he would have died at exactly that particular moment? That's the caesura. That's the break. That's where the gap is, right? So then Bhushanabhatta, the son, ostensibly takes up the thread of the story. And um, he, after those verses that I mentioned, and the first thing he says, I mean, there's a series of things, but we're going to look at two or two and a half things that follow immediately at this moment of juncture or disjuncture, exactly there. The first thing that Kadambari says via her messenger, Patraleka, is 6A on your handout. Um, let's read just a little bit of it in the Sanskrit. Saivaham Kadambari, there we are with the formula. Saivaham Kadambari Ya Anena Kumarena. Well, now there's a series of um, Bahuvrihi clauses, which I'm going to skip, although it's terrible to do that uh, for Bana. But if you go to the end of the sentence, which is a few lines down, you get to Kusuma Srastravalam Bini Vikshita. I am that same Kadambari who was gazed on by the prince as I reclined upon a flower couch within the snow house. These are memories of the not-so-very-happy time that they had in the Himalayas a few weeks ago. Let's read it in English. This is the um, Lane translation, which is on the whole a pretty good translation, I think. And I recommend it, actually, for those of you who don't want to read the Kadambari in Sanskrit, if there are such people um, in the world, uh, I recommend the Lane translation because it does actually give you a sense of uh, the way the story progresses also something of the texture. So let's read this passage. It was that time of evening when the heartache of separated lovers is reflected in the Chakravaka's sad laments intertwined with soft kulahala sounds of swarming bees, buzzing honey drunk, when the ten directions are refreshed by a fragrant wind, languid with perfume uh, emanating from blown lotuses, and so on. I'm skipping a bit. I am that same Kadambari. But now it turns out that the identity statement carries on and expands. It was into the range of these same eyes which longed to see him ever and again. Actually, it's an odd phrase in Sanskrit. Apunar uktatadaushana sprehe, lochane, right? Beautiful. Okay. Um, it was into the range of those same eyes that the prince came. This is that same wretched heart, so vacant with confusion, into which he entered, but in which he could not be held. This is that same body that stayed near him a long time without notice. This is that same hand that, out of a false regard for elders, did not have itself taken in, mar in marriage by him. And he is that same Chandrapita. I don't know if she says it hopefully or just the opposite. He is that same Chandrapita who, disregarding another's woe, came here to twice, then went away. And then to rub it all in, it is the same five-arrowed God who is now powerless against others because he has spent his arrows on me and who is the very one made known to me by you. Okay? First thing she says, she uses the what I'm calling the nostalgia formula. I'm the same person that I was. Now, you might say to yourself, well, is this really nostalgic because she wasn't so happy when... Um, Chandrapita was up there with her in the Himalayas, can one be nostalgic for moments that are not particularly happy? The answer is absolutely yes, no question about it. Especially 
if the situation has deteriorated markedly since those rather unhappy moments, which is exactly Kadambari's case. Because some weeks or months have gone by and she's had no word of him and all kinds of crazy things are going on in her mind. So she is actually a little nostalgic for those moments where at least she could see him, you know, something like that. And there was some hope that he would come round, right? You also might notice, however, remember I'm trying to argue that the nostalgia formula is inherently paradoxical, or actually, in a way, it's really false. I'm that same Kadambari means I'm not quite the woman I was a few weeks ago, right? And also the final statement that she makes is uh, clearly patently false. It's the same Manmata, the same five-year-old god, he's now powerless against others because he spent his arrows on me. All she has to do is look around and she'll see that people are falling in love right and left. So absolutely, it's not true. Part of the nostalgia formula and its expanded statements like we have here are further false statements, right? That's, I think, normative for this thing. I, I want to restate this a little bit just to bring out the distinctiveness of this moment. Um, see, I, after all, what is she saying? Um, one way to re-articulate re it would be to say, look what happened. You've gone away and you've left me stuck where I was just a few weeks ago. Even though time is passing, right? Time is passing and in fact my situation is much worse today <coughs> than it was then. There's what I regard as the kind of, let's call it the Bartraharian paradox of time built into this. Why do I call it that? Because Bhartra Hari says in the Kala Samudesha, the long essay on time, one of the things he says is that time has this double quality about it. On the one hand, it's kind of broken down into this endless, really infinite series of tiny moments, which have a certain kind of rhythm built into it. You know? And there's a devolutionary force to time. It gets worse. It degenerates. That's the way we tend to experience time, right? On the other hand, Bhartrahari says about time the same thing he says about spota. And actually there are other things that we could talk about. Namely, that actually time is a, is a non-changing, holistic kind of thing. It's always present in a kind of endless present moment. These two things somehow exist together for Bhartrahari. So we can't really go into it here. But something like that seems to be implicit in what Kadambari is saying, right? I'm just the same person I always was. Meaning, I'm stuck in the past and you've gone away, you bastard, and things are getting worse by the minute, right? Okay. All right, that's one side of it. Everybody with me to this point? Because I want you to see what happens next. <coughs> and those of you who know the kind of questions that are interesting to me at this particular moment will see why I pick this text and why it grabbed me. See, what she then says, immediately this, the next thing she says, rather beautifully, let's read the beginning of it in Sanskrit. Madanenava, daivenava, virainava, yauvanenava, anuragenava, madenava, ridayenava, anenava kenapi, dattaha sankalpa mayaha kumaro, jana sannidhavapi, Kenachid avibhavyamanaha siddha eva salvada me dadati daushanam. Because of the maddener, that is manmata, or of fate, of being separated from a lover, of youth, of passion, of madness of the heart, or of some other reason, the prince, that is Chandrapida, her beloved, is always with me. 
made of fancy he is, sankalpamaya, made of the imagination. Sankalpa, one of the classical words for the imagination. Made of fancy he is, like a siddha, and his supernatural powers make him imperceptible to everyone else, even to those standing very near me. This fanciful lover, unlike that real one, has not the cruelty of heart to leave me so abruptly. He fears being separated from me. He does not concern himself both night and day with the goddess of fortune. He is not a lord of the earth. See, it's bad news to fall in love with a prince or a king. The fantasy lover is just some ordinary guy, right? Even better, he does not bow to the goddess of speech. See, one of the problems with Chandrapita is that he's very glib. He has the gift of the gab. He can say all kinds of wonderful things that have the effect of seducing the woman, but they have no actual sort of stuff of substance behind them. So he does not bow to the goddess of speech, and he does not crave shouting, shouting glories. No egomaniac, unlike Chandrapita was very much concerned with his public persona and what the people around him think about him, including his parents above all. Okay, so I have told you how I see the prince night and day, whether sitting, rising, wandering about, lying down, waking, dozing, moving, dreaming, on a couch on beauty spot, in the palace lotus beds, in the gardens, in the sporting ponds, or in the little rivulets trickling down the pleasure hill, that deceiver whose soul occupation is to mock this foolish person, mainly me. Enough of this talk of bringing him here. This is a quotation that Patraleka, the messenger, is reporting to the lover Chandrapita. Forget this whole idea of bringing this guy back from Ujjayini. I have him with me all the time as a fantasy person who is clearly much superior to the real flesh and blood, blood lover, who's rather disappointing, like most of us are. <laughs> now, at this moment, the messenger, that is Patraleka, allows herself a little public meditation on what she's just heard. She's talking to the lover, Chandrapita. And she says, well, you know, when I heard her say that, I immediately saw the advantages of having the fantasy lover. And here's what she says. Having listened to her, I, Patraleka, thought, this is a great support indeed to aid those women separated from their lovers to cling to life, namely, an imaginary lover. It is crucial in the case of high-born ladies, and most of all, in that of princesses. For then, love play is free from the awkward times when messengers prostrate themselves. There are a myriad unions at every moment. The amorous meetings are pleasant because they can be had at any time. There is the thrill of capricious encounters and the virginity of the maiden remains intact. Very useful advantage. Also, in such love play, there are embraces in which breasts do not intervene. There are no embarrassing wounds of tooth and nail marks to be seen. There is no disarray of ornamented tresses. There is no playful seizing of the hair. Sex acts are wordless. Actually, Shabda Vihina, I think it means they're silent, soundless. And the frisky play of biting the lower lip does not produce a shameful rent to be seen by the elders. And finally, a kind of lyrical summing up, the imaginary lover is not concealed by a cloak of night, screened by a veil of rain, nor swathed in a blanket of mist. Now, I mean, I don't have to tell you that this is said tongue-in-cheek. It's obviously ironic. There's no question about that. She doesn't mean it. 
Pachuleka, pretty clear. But what's interesting here to me is that we have, I think, a rather early, early in classical India, early articulation of the powers of the imagination, above all in terms of the constancy and autonomy of the imagination in relation to what we might call something like normal human life or reality or something like that. See how clearly it's stated, the imagination is quite capable of supplying any lack, unlike the real lover. And in fact, the juxtaposition is some meaning, does it not? I mean, first you have the nostalgia formula, I'm the same person I was, meaning I am not the same person I was, meaning things are getting out of hand, they're going from bad to worse, there's a kind of deep sense of discontinuity, a gap in my experience, a disjunction of myself as myself, and immediately opposed to that, and perhaps somehow compensating for it, is this imaginative act. There's an imaginary lover who will make good that disjunction. See, those two elements, they don't actually exhaust the semantic force of nostalgia in Sanskrit, but they seem to be intrinsic to much of it. Those two elements, the disjunction, the paradoxical statement, I am who I am, the temporal paradox, and along with it, the sense that nostalgia itself, the very act of remembering in that way, is an imaginative act. And that imaginative act has its own integrity and autonomy. It's an early statement of something which becomes much more fully worked out well, a long time later, maybe a thousand years later in South India. Narayanarao and I have written about that, and I don't want to go into it here. Okay, I, I want to stop, uh, except I want to take just another two or three minutes. Um, first of all, I want to say one more thing about this particular moment in the Kadambari, and then I want to try to sum up very briefly. See, there's another thing here. We've, well, actually, this is the moment of Bana's alleged death. You have to remember that that's the context for whatever is being said at this moment. That disjunction that is built into the text, and which actually, I believe, is intrinsic to the text. I believe it's the moment, in a sense, of its deepest expressivity. It's almost as if the text were being sucked into that moment from every possible angle. At that moment, what do we have? We have a statement of the nostalgia theme, the nostalgia formula, we have a very powerful statement of the imagination and the powers of the imagination. And we have a linguistic, uh, what shall we call it, a kind of linguistic concomitant of the actual nostalgia and state itself. Um, well, my colleagues heard me talk about this in Kyoto, so I'm not going to go into it. But if you read the texture of Bana's prose, um, if you read it in a kind of close way, the way somebody like Auerbach would have read it, then I think you'll see that that same particular tension that I've just tried to define is inherent in the prose. It's a part of the way the sentences are put together. And that's as it should be, because, at least as a working principle, I would suggest, one might assume that there ought to be a kind of isomorphism between the level of linguistic texture, the way a sentence works, not only syntax, but the whole business of making a sentence, and between the semantic burdens of what the text is trying to tell us. They should somehow be isomorphic. And if they're not, then the fact that they're not should also tell us something. Okay? 
So I don't have time to work it out, but if it interests any of you here, I'll be happy to try to tell you more specifically what I mean by that. Let me just try to say a couple of words in, about nostalgia now and kind of drawing the things together. There, what is nostalgia in Sanskrit? I mean, is there anything distinctive about it? That's the question that I tried to ask at the beginning. I haven't answered it in any very full way, but I'd like to suggest that there are a few things that have come up that are perhaps worth emphasizing. First of all, the fact that nostalgia tends to be oriented towards the future in Sanskrit. Secondly, the fact that it is an imaginative act, or at the very least you could say there's an imaginative component, and as such it's a very patterned, recursive, recurrent, if you like the word structured way of imagining. Thirdly, the fact that this imaginative act is built upon paradoxical statements, or if you like, upon the Bartraharian paradox of time. Fourth, the fact that there's a metapoetic element built into it. I haven't had time to expand upon this theme, but actually I see the whole of the Kadambari as a kind of riddle. Riddles, you know, tend to have a metapoetic component in them. What is the riddle? Well, the riddle has something to do uh, on the one hand with the author's death in the middle of his work. It also has something to do with this kind of wistful projection or retrojection of stability in the face of a very powerful sense of the discontinuous self. Fifth, there's a theme here which really deserves to be expanded, which has to do with the longing for the lost self. You know, the contexts that we've been looking at are all basically erotic contexts, right? But there's a wider theme here. It's easy in a way to find these verses, I, at least I, I was surprised, it's easy to find verses of this kind of nostalgic type that have to do with the love relationship in one or another of its phases. You know. But actually, the minute you begin to think about this notion of longing for the lost self, including the sort of paradoxical burden of that statement, then all kinds of other contexts come into play. What about the advanced yogi who suddenly feels a kind of longing for his empirical self that he has left behind or is on the verge of leaving behind? We have a whole story, an important story, um, in, you know, in, in the classical yoga, uh, yoga literature of Vyasa and his son Shuka, which is built exactly around that theme. It's funny, you would think that the person who's like poised to enter you know, total freedom would be happy about it. Actually, it turns out that they tend to be nostalgic about the lost empirical self. And finally, this is the last thing, I mean, I haven't had time to go into it. But I did mention in passing just a minute ago that in the case of the Kadambari, the love relationships are built between, they're both of them structured um, between a, a, a kind of divine woman, Apsaras, who lives forever and is relatively stable as such, and between a human man who is very unstable. See, this is the Pururavas Urvashi theme, is it not? The male lover who is in love with some kind of divine female. Um, mixed marriages of this sort don't usually work out very well. And that's certainly the case also in the Kadambari. All I want to suggest in conclusion is that once we've identified this nostalgia theme at a moment of such sensitive import in the text, we may also have isolated a certain kind of definition of one 
one question that has to do with being human. Let me put it differently. Perhaps nostalgia is a very distinctively human and properly human thing. Thanks very much. <laughs>